this is one of those Sundays where preachers uh, many times will say, how come I have to be the one to preach on this stuff? <laughs> so uh, actually it's, it's not that bad, um, although it's, it can be a bit hair-raising. Uh, there's a subtext to this that I'm going to say. I was at the clergy conference this week. One of the comments that the presenter made about uh, things generally uh, is that we're all, f we're all familiar with the term throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You all know what that is. So we, we maybe as we're going into the gospel portion of this, I'm going to preach on the epistle first. We might want to ask ourselves, or you might want to ask yourself, because I'm not going to answer it, what is the baby? Okay? What is the baby? And that's an issue that uh, comes up in all kinds of areas, not just moral and ethical, but other areas as well. This is the Sunday after Epiphany, or the, rather the sixth Sunday after Epiphany, and it is the season when we think about the ways and the means to make manifest the presence of God, and all of the readings have something to do about uh, with manifestations. We go through up to Lent, so depending on the date of Easter, you have an indeterminate number of Sundays after Epiphany, and uh, Lent begins late this year, so we're going almost to the bitter end here with the, uh, all of the Epiphany reading Sundays after Epiphany in this small green season. So I think normally the Epistle and the Gospel are not related to one another, but I think they are to some degree because today Paul is speaking about uh, spiritual immaturity among those who believe themselves to be spiritually mature and the consequences for relational and community life uh, that accrue to that outlook. And in the reading from the Gospel, we have now the beginning of an extended teaching by Jesus, ethical teaching, on uh, issues that I think this week bear on relationship. And so, um, maybe these two readings do have something to do with one another because uh, Jesus is speaking about uh, the consequences of an immature or bad spiritual condition. And we need to maybe understand what that might mean. So first let's talk about Paul. In 1 Corinthians, we're at the beginning, this is chapter 3, so we're at the beginning of the letter. And Paul is concerned about some, a situation on the ground where people in his, uh, who, who uh, are there now after he's left, some of the founders of the Corinthian congregation, and a, a new gang have come in to explain to the Corinthian Christians what it means to be um, a Christian, uh, what it means to be spiritual. We'll see through the whole of this letter that the Corinthians are put uh, spiritual gifts at a high premium. And so they're concerned about uh, their spiritual gifts, their cultivation, and it appears that there are a number of people who believe themselves to have arrived. <laughs> who are spiritually gifted. Um, in, in the Greek New Testament, pneumatica 
is the word for spiritual gifts. We get what? Pneumatic? Pneumonia? You know, spirit? So maybe that's sort of the source of, of the word. So he uses that most of the time. But uh, in elsewhere in the epistle, he also refers to spiritual gifts as psychicos. Where we might get the word what? Psychic, right? So that has something to do with spiritual discernment and the ability that some people seem to have uh, in the area of spiritual discernment. And as we know, the area of spiritual discernment is probably the most fertile field for snake oil <laughs> with regard to spirituality. This reading to me has a lot to do with uh, a condition that we have now in this country which uh, it's, comes and goes. It obviously was here in Paul's time. But if, you, if people who do these kinds of studies are correct, about 20 or 25 percent of the population would say, if you ask them, that they were, they're spiritual. But they're not religious. And somehow when they do that, obviously they're making a value judgment about religion and religiosity. And they're speaking to some degree about uh, perhaps the authenticity of a self-realized spirituality, you know. Now, I have a very broad definition of what I mean when I use the word spiritual. Spiritual is what Thomas Merton said about it in his Thoughts in Solitude, in my view, and that is the spiritual life is the whole of life, body, soul, spirit, mind, given to God in love. And so that has to do both with our, with our emotional, spiritual, and mental states, you know. So the spiritual life is not a life of feeling. It is not a life of intellectual uh, precision. It's both. And you need to understand it in terms of it being both, you know. Spirituality does involve practice and practices. And so there is um, some virtue in being associated with a tradition and an institution. One of the great uh, preachers in the Anglican Communion, a guy named Herbert O'Driscoll, a Canadian priest, who I first met when I was in seminary, uh, gave the clergy conference in this diocese about 12 years ago, or 15 years ago now, <clears throat> on post-modernity. And he said, any spirituality worth its salt institutionalizes. Which is a bitter pill for many, because we all say, oh yeah, but the institutional church, dot, dot, dot. So Paul is trying to, to say to these people who are probably of some view around all that, that here are the, here's the downside of this kind of uh, puffed up sense or totally subjective definition of what it means to be spiritual. And that is that it causes dissension and strife within the community and it compromises relational life and allows corrupt motive to rise to the surface. And he is seeing this now because 
uh, even though if, if he was maybe a little less mature, he might be pleased that there are people who think Paul hung the moon, and so did his partner Apollos, who were two of the guys who founded the Corinthian church. So he said, I'm from Apollos, I'm from Paul. And he said, this kind of hero worship is an indication of your lack of spiritual aptitude. Because what the two of us have done, and maybe others, Chloe's people, who were referred to uh, a few, is that they've said, look, we're setting you on a path here. We're setting you on a way, a journey. And in our tradition that believes in the sacramental life, we would say that one of the ways you affirm that in an exterior sense is through your baptism. And so by virtue of that, you now have been grafted onto the body of Christ and you are prepared to go with him on the journey and to take seriously the places in the Gospels where he has said, follow me. And what that means, of course, is that you and I are now going to have to be faced with the ambiguities and the uncertainties and the conundrums of developing a spiritual life, indeed developing some institutional understanding of how we live together, which is what Jesus is getting at when we get to the gospel in some ways. How do we understand who we are and how we ought to operate just if this may be getting way up here, but the fact of the matter is that the spiritual but not religious group and others in this country who believe some version of this uh, are actually the heirs of the new romantic movement. The new romantic movement came from my gang in the 60s that preferred disorder over order, that preferred you know uh, ambiguity over certainty, that had a particular hermeneutic with regard to the way they understood reality and what was authentic. And it connects right back to Rousseau and Goethe and all of the people in the original uh, Romantica movement, right? So it's not new, but it always appears to be new. And people who discover it think, boy, I'm really on to something. I remember uh, a friend in, in my first parish, a urologist, who did a lot of um, uh, academic medicine in addition to his practice. In other words, he wrote in learned journals. And he'd figured out this new procedure uh, in, 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 a, in a urological operation that he was, uh, had found out, and it was just absolutely terrific. And he published an article in a learned journal about you know how to do this. And lo and behold, an article had been written in a Swedish medical journal where the, the urologist in Sweden had figured it out before him. He'd scooped him, right? But he thought it was something that was brand new because nobody else around him knew anything about it, right? So that's sometimes how the train or the ball gets rolling. Paul is making a commercial message today for understanding uh, internal spiritual maturity as having something to do with the creation and preservation and maintenance of integrity in relationship. The only location for authenticity and spirituality because it's based, isn't it, on a relationship, whether it's God, the other, you know, crystals, I don't know. But it has something to do with that. So today in the in the gospel, 
Matthew, uh, Jesus is continuing, and he begins his ethical teaching now, uh, and he talks about some things that are hair-raising. What I'm going to spend probably the most time on is divorce, because there's no way to get out of it, is there? It's mentioned here, and we've got to talk about it, and he's, Jesus appears to be a big stiffy. <laughs> so we've got to understand something about what it means when we talk about it, and how we... we uh, come to that in, in our reckoning and reflection. Um, remember, too, that Episcopalians have a, a standard by which they measure what is authoritative, and that's the biblical witness, tr the tradition with a capital T, and our own human reason and experience. So all of this must be brought to bear on the biblical text uh, as we think about it, because in one sense, the biblical text emerged from those other two things. You know, so we, that's just an important observation. Jesus is teaching uh, uh, and doing an ethical teaching in a way that would have been very familiar in his world, and that is that he presents a series of antitheses. You have heard that it was said, da-da, I say, da-da. So we have the law, Jesus's saying on the law and how it's to be lived. All of these antitheses have something to do with relationship. You know, you could focus on any one of them as cutting your hand off and poking your eye out. Is the savior of the world inviting each of us to, to self-mutilation? You know, there's some early Christians who took it seriously in one form or another? The answer, of course, is no. He's speaking in extreme terms for a purpose. But the important thing to start with when you read this part of the Sermon on the Mount is to understand that when Jesus speaks of the what's permissible, what's not permissible, he's mostly concerned with our motives. Matthew's gospel is the gospel where we have a Jesus who is more concerned with our motives perhaps than any other gospel writer. Our interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states. And how that in fact affects behavior. Some of his proposals certainly were radical in his own day and his suggestions were radical about all of that. But they all have something to do with beginning to learn how to push corrupt motives to the side and having sound motives governing your external behavior. So he speaks about legal matters, he speaks about Christian people being people of reconciliation. All of those things are important. But now we come to the divorce issue. So this is the time for a little uh, teaching on this matter so that we have some idea of the state of the conversation, which has been going on for a long time. Um, Jesus's, the, the issue of divorce is raised uh, at least four times in the New Testament. In all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in 1 Corinthians later, Paul will speak about divorce. So before I get to those passages, let me say this is the fancy part of this, which may, I may lose you. But here are the three things that we need to know about divorce when we read these passages. 
We need to know something about the eschatological horizon of Jesus, which is a fancy way of saying, what did he think about the coming of the kingdom or the nature of the kingdom and when it was going to come and how big a dramatic change things were going to be? How do we think about the reality that in the New Testament itself, number two, the church already felt free to uh, interpret Jesus's absolute prohibition of divorce. The strictest prohibition against divorce is in Mark's gospel. Matthew qualifies it and brings adultery into the picture. Luke <coughs> brings adultery into the picture. Paul written much earlier than any of the Gospels, says in 1 Corinthians, this comes from me and not from the Lord. If you're married to an unbeliever, you can divorce them. It's more elaborate than that, but in so many words. <laughs> So, so there's another qualification. Well, what is that all, all this about? It's about Christian people seeking to be faithful, saying, what do we do about the pastoral realities on the ground? What are the things that have begun to emerge? How do we come to uh, uh, deal with uh, the, the, the absolute strict thing and people's real lives? And on what side should the institution err? There are some people that say it shouldn't err on the side of generosity and liberality in this matter. It should be absolute. It's always made, been very interesting to me that some of the most rock-rib evangelical traditions in this country who are adamant about divorce have the highest divorce rates in the country. <laughs> scandal and so you have a situation where you know and also you need to know in the Roman Catholic Church there has always been divorce it is just called by another name okay so it's always been here the church has had to grapple with the situation of people on the ground the pastoral reality of the church and you know, this isn't just some facile explanation because the pastoral experience of the church impacts all aspects of how we live our life together in relationship and community and do so with integrity. And how do we labor to keep people in rather than find the ways and the means to keep people out? All of the conversation we've been having for too long about human sexuality has to do with whether or not we should err on the side of generosity or we should say, you know what, it just wasn't right the way we were thinking about this and we're going to do it a different way now. And the reason is, is because we've heard the stories of people that we love and accept and we want them in. And that that's the godly choice. So when we read these things that sound very remote to us, this sounds pretty a lot of this stuff way a long time ago. But they all come up over and over again. 
So what this afforded me the opportunity to do was make a commercial message to you about the importance of generosity and living in uh, the, or modeling in some way, God's unconditional acceptance, forgiveness, and love. You know, none of us can do that perfectly. It is impossible. Elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, the disciples are going to say to Jesus when he give, lays another hard one on them, he's going he's to say, well, who can do this? Who can do this? And he said, with, with human beings, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So the more that you and I begin to say to ourselves, I wish to cooperate with the divine initiative begun in me, the spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen me, the more I see the importance of integrity and relationship, the more I see that you and I are, to, uh, are, are uh, called to live in yes and no at the same time. It, to me, is in no way inconsistent for the church to preach and teach on the indissolubility of marriage, on the importance of keeping solemn promises, and at the same time exercising a generous pastoral reach to people who have found themselves in a position where their marriages need to be unbuckled for the mutual health and welfare of everybody concerned, you know. So those two things may appear for some inconsistent or unbearably ambiguous and difficult. I know that. But the fact is that I believe the church can do it, and that's what we're called to do. Amen.